Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, Dale and I are very delighted to be joined by Dr. Joshua Mitchell, uh, who is Professor of Political Theory at Georgetown University, to discuss his recent book, American Awakening, Identity of Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time. Dale and I have been reading this over the last couple of weeks and discussing it privately, and both of us have found it just a just a, a, a water in the desert, I must say, on, on a very fraught and difficult topic that is often discussed in, in somewhat shallow ways. And maybe the first thing to do, uh, uh, Dr. Mitchell, is uh, is just to talk about the, the 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 kind of original move you're making here, which is that you're putting the 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 conversation about identity politics uh, in conversation with sort of modern mental health issues. Uh, or you're, if not, if not, uh, 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 sort of, sort of, literally, at least, sort of metaphorically and structurally. So you yeah. talk about America's bipolarity and its addiction problem, uh, and you're wanting to put that in conversation with the the recent rise of what we call identity politics. Yeah. And maybe that just is, you know, kind of curious enough on the front side to toss it over to you and say, what are you, what are you doing? I guess for the uninitiated, by putting those two things in conversation with each other. Well, it's interesting you should pose this question. I never quite thought of it this way. It's making me reflect back uh, to growing up in the 60s and my, my growing dissatisfaction. I grew up in a wholly secular family and my growing dissatisfaction with secular psychological accounts emerging out of Freud and Nietzsche of the human person. And so much of my uh, intellectual life for the last 40 years has been an attempt to retrieve an older set of understandings and so with respect to bipolarity, for example, uh, one can go back certainly as far as Augustine's Confessions, and I think even before that, fragments of Plato, to see that this was understood in a profound theological way uh, long ago. And, and what we've done by psychologizing it and, and make, rendering it as a material phenomenon, as we've said, this is a brain chemistry problem. And Tocqueville, I think, is particularly informative. We can talk about this in detail a bit later. But he understood bipolarity as a sociological phenomenon, as something that emerges peculiarly in the democratic age. And then with respect to addiction, my view is there too, we, we haven't plumbed the depths of this. Um, there are fragments, pieces in Plato's Republic and even in Rousseau, who I'm not always a fan of, uh, where there's a deep, deep understanding of the temptations of what I call substitutism. That is to say, turning a supplement into a substitute. Mm. Yes. And actually, while the identity politics portion of the book, which is the first one, is perhaps the most controversial, my view has been from the beginning that the third portion on, on what, what we're calling addiction is actually the bigger problem. Mm. Uh, there's a whole host of phenomena that we can talk about that seem to be unrelated, which in fact are quite related. And that even if we were to solve the identity politics problem, which is the immediate one we have before us, there'll be other problems. There's a, this, this other issue that we have to address as well. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I, I found it very helpful. By the way, just based on what you said there, uh, there's a book out. We actually interviewed the author. Uh, his name is Matthew Lapine called The Psychology of the Body. Or I'm sorry. Uh, the Logic. Uh, the Logic of the Body. Yeah. You should check that out. You'd probably find that very interesting. He actually pulls from Aquinas to oh, show yeah. the theological depths of uh, a tiered psychology. Yeah. Um, but one thing I found very interesting about the book was uh, your, there's two parts. Um, the first part is dealing with identity politics sort of per se, and yeah. the other part is dealing with the psychological moves of the Western man, how, you know, the bipolarity and the addiction. Yeah. Uh, but the overarching sort of theme that you draw throughout the book is a very religious one, an explicitly Christian one. Yeah. Um, and Tom Holland is doing something similar mm -hmm. uh, where he's trying to say, we swim in the waters of Western modernity and that in, down into our DNA is Christian. Yeah. And so we're fighting all of the Christian impulses and looking for a catharsis to, to sort of solve the atonement problem of guilt and sin and shame. Yeah. And that identity politics sort of helps the modern person find relief or find the catharsis, yeah. uh, but with a perverted form of atonement because there really is no forgiveness. Yeah. So, so maybe we can start there and you can give us just a 
basic broad outline of what identity politics is trying to do, what some of the claims are, uh, what the telos is of yep. this new movement. Um, uh, we can have a conversation about that and then we'll get into the second part of the book. Okay. So the first thing I would observe is that identity is used in, in two distinct ways. 30 years ago, we would say things like, I'm an American, I'm this, I'm that, but we never used the word identity. Now everybody is running around saying, well, I have this kind of identity and that kind of identity. We're no longer Americans, we have an American identity. Well, that in itself is curious. So it, it stands as a, a, identity as a proxy for kind, American kind, et cetera. And in that sense, in that regard, I'm not troubled by the use of the term identity, but it strikes me that that the, the power of identity politics today is not that it pertains to kind, but that it pertains to a relationship. And I think this is the insight that I've been trying to raise. And in fact, if you really look at the book, the book, the three parts of the book are about different relationships. Uh, the relationship that is identity politics, the relationship that is mania and depression, um, the relationship that mm -hmm. is uh, meal and supplement. Uh, so it's really a, a book about relations. Um, but to return out to identity politics, this, the second meaning of identity is this relationship, and it's a relationship of a peculiar kind between an innocent victim and a transgressor. Now, all of us who have, who have been raised uh, in the Christian tradition understand <clears throat> that when we're, start, when we're talking about innocent victims, that in point of fact, we, we know that there's one innocent victim, it's Christ, uh, and so our antenna go up about this. <clears throat> and my argument is that what's happened certainly since the, the 1960s and the collapse of the mainline churches is that this category of innocence has, and, and transgression has left the churches, that the churches went soft a long time ago. Mm. Uh, we can say they started going soft after Calvin. We can, there's all sorts of places <laughs> yeah, right. identify it. Uh, but, but they started going soft and they didn't understand what its treasure really was. And its treasure is that it, it had a way of understanding transgression and innocence and understanding that in order to address the problem, there has to be atonement, repentance, forgiveness things like this. So there's an, there's an overall architecture within which these category of, of transgression and innocence resides. And only in that, within that full architecture um, can we resolve the problem that transgression and innocence poses. Now, what's happened is that when the churches gave up on that, <laughs> excuse me, in the, night, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, and we could date it a long time before that, but it really, they, they really collapsed after the Vietnam War. The category of innocence and transgression did not go away. The secularists wanted to say that once we talked about innocence and transgression, and then we became secular, and we're not going to talk about those categories anymore. But that's not yeah. true. What happened is the categories are eternal categories, and that's because it's inscribed into the very condition of us as heirs of Adam, I'll make that Christian claim. Uh, and so it's not going to go away. And so what happened was, uh, these, the, this next generation, which didn't have a full theological architecture, retained the categories of transgression innocence and came up with a, a new moral accounting. And this is identity politics. And so when the Pew Charitable Trust does a study and says that more than half the Americans of American public are now members of the nuns, the non-affiliated, yep. as I say in the book, this is, this is simply incorrect. Yes, they're not affiliated with churches, but they don't need to be because they're looking for an answer to transgression and innocence. They're trying to figure out the moral economy of transgression and innocence. The churches aren't offering it. And so identity politics has offered it. So the categories have moved from religion out into politics. So we have this profoundly perverted Christianity that's working itself out now uh, in the American body politic. <clears throat> Everything that the Democratic Party seems to be concerned about uh, these days can be traced to the what I call the prime transgressor, the white heterosexual male, whether it's capitalism or dirty fossil fuels or the nation state or the family or the church, everything is linked to this particular person. And I hope it goes without saying that I have no interest whatsoever in defending racial politics. 
right. my view is that what we have is a deeply perverse understanding of, of how it is we take away the sins of the world. So from the mm -hmm. Christian vantage point, there is only one innocent lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In identity politics, the prime transgressor, if we purge him, will take away the sins of the world. So if we can get rid of the white heterosexual male and all that he has brought, then we can have a pure world. And as I said, all, all of the things that are in the Democratic Party really can be traced to the pathology, uh, the, the stain that is the white heterosexual male. You can't build a world in this way whatsoever. Yeah, there's a one of the things that's worth, I think, clarifying is that I, I'm, I'm kind of imagining an audience and they hear this and they think, well, I went to school, you know, I went to grad school, I read some 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 papers that were sort of using identity politics lingo and the and the definition of identity politics in that sort of grad school context can be very formal. So you open the textbook and it says identity politics is yada yada yada, yada whatever that definition is, the art of, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and I gather that what you're what the way you're using identity politics while not disconnected from that is more phenomenological. That is to say it's you're looking at a, a kind of moral system that's concretely being operated or being carried out yes. that doesn't imply a particular, if I'm understanding you correctly, doesn't quite imply a particular conscious commitment to a definition. Uh, it's more a, a system that you're either tacitly or explicitly working out that yes. you should have received, inherited. And I think this is, this is one of the difficulties. So for a while, we would talk about wokeism, and now we're talking a great deal about critical race theory, and all these things are out there, but I'm, I think you're, you're perceptive here. I'm trying to step back and say, at the deepest level, what is going on here? And I think at the deepest level, what's going on is there's an attempt to, to, uh, to bring to bear the categories of transgression and innocence in, in a set of relations. And I say this is so, in some way, deeply indebted to Christianity, because for the Christian, we are all the guilty ones, and there's one innocent victim, uh, and that's Christ, and there's, there's a divine scapegoat. But what's actually happening now is that in the move away from Christianity, we've not, we've not arrived at secularism. We've arrived at a derivative of Christianity, hmm. and so we're looking for the scapegoat who can take away the sins of the world. Well, the Christian knows that there's one sufficient scapegoat. Read, read Paul's letter to the Hebrews. Uh, but with identity politics, we're still looking for a scapegoat in the hope that we can, by purging this person, we can solve the problems of the world. So you can see aspects of feminism as, as committed to this. You can even see aspects of Marxism, right? If we can get rid of the bourgeoisie and, and hand life or hand the goods over to the proletariat who are the innocent victims. This is all of this, the last 100, 200 years have been derivatives of Christianity. And you know, the great question in intellectual history is what's the status of the enlightenment and what came after it, right? Yeah. Was it a break from Christianity or not? Mm. And I think it's safe to say it was a partial break. And while I am no fan of Nietzsche, I will say Nietzsche was the one who saw this most clearly. And I rely on him greatly in the book. Uh, mm. He says in one, one of his, I think most famous essays, he says, it is the church and not its poison that offends us, who's us. It's the enlightened people. So we, we push back against religion, but the outworkings of Christianity, what he calls the poison, we're still committed to these things. Mm -hmm. And so Nietzsche thought that Western man would be trapped for centuries, in fact, with, this, uh, with, with the accoutrements of Christianity, but without the larger architecture. And my argument is that's what identity politics is. It's the entrapment right. that we're, we're currently involved in and the reason why it's so extraordinarily dangerous is because when you keep telling people that they are stained and irredeemably stained, which is exactly the phrase that's used oftentimes by the left, and you don't offer the gospel good news, some, some way of, of uh, accepting God's gift, and we can have complicated conversations about that, but if there's no, if there's no way to have a tomorrow in which your stain has been lifted from your shoulders, what you end up doing is producing a generation of, of young men, especially, who have begun to say, well, let's see, we're irredeemably stained. Uh, we don't care. We don't care about slavery. We don't care about colonialism. I'm not thinking of Europe. We don't care about two world wars. We don't care about the Holocaust. 
this is beginning to emerge. And so the, the, there's three possible alternatives before us today. One, and this is the one I prefer, is that we would see in identity politics um, a, a, a thin gruel, which attempts to make sense of I, uh, transgression and innocence. And we would then say, well, it's not getting us anywhere. We do need to think about innocence and transgression, but the church has the proper way to think about these things. Yeah. That's the first. So we go back. In other words, we, we had this little half experiment with stepping halfway away from Christianity. So, so now we have to go back and understand that we can't think through transgression and innocence without returning to the theological categories which Christianity has given us. That's my preferred option. The second option is that we stumble along in this way uh, and present this, uh, uh, rebuild the world on the basis of this claim that if we can just purge the white man and all that he has wrought, we'll have, we'll bring ourselves to the end of history and, and the lion will lay down with the lamb. Well, that is theologically impossible, uh, but it, it would not surprise me if this experiment goes on for some time mm -hmm. uh, it, at immense cost. And then the third option is the option that Nietzsche himself recommended. And what he had proposed was, in order to have a tomorrow, uh, you, we don't take the Christian option, which is atonement, repentance, and forgiveness. What we, end up, what we need to do is forget. Yeah. Words, all the sins that we have been involved in, there, there is no need for a reckoning, is all we have to do is forget. So slavery, well, who cares? Colonialism, yeah. who cares? The Holocaust, who cares? Yeah. And that's, that is the real alt-right. People yes. want to say that Richard Spencer and, and others like him are the alt-right. That's not the alt-right. Richard Spencer is still working within the category of transgression and innocence. He's just flipping it around. We white people are the innocent ones, and those dark people are the transgressors. That's not the alt-right. Nietzsche's argument is that, is that what we need to do is completely give up on the category of innocence mm. and transgression. So white nationalists who are playing this identity politics game, they're not the alt-right. To give up on the categories entirely is to say that we will now return to the archaic categories uh, of the Homeric world, strength and weakness. And so yeah. there will be no more innocent victims whatsoever. There will be no more voices of the victims that we're supposed to hear. All this language, which is profoundly Christian, we get rid of all of it and we only have strength and weakness. That's the real meaning of the alt-right. So we have these three alternatives before us. And I want to go back to the Christian one. And I think the churches have utterly failed to show that they have an ample, a fully ample way of accounting for transgression and innocence. They've given up on mm. this. And it's only by the churches returning to their treasure that they'll be able to pull these young people who are desperately searching for a way to understand transgression and innocence back. Yeah. Go ahead, Dale. So one thing that um, was was I guess was there subconsciously as I'm reading your book, just because of my experience with what we're dealing with, uh, but that you nevertheless articulated was that if we have this scapegoat over here and we slap a label on him, the straight, the, the, the straight white man, um, and then we purge society from with that disease and uh, miraculously a utopia will sort of emerge. Uh, what you do a good job of is saying, well, no, because the desire for the scapegoat is never going to subside. It's like a bloodlust. It's almost like vampirism. Uh, you can never have enough of the thing. So then they're going to move in uh, and they're going to find another set of identities that they need to purge society from, because once we get rid of that thing, then utopia gets here. Yeah. And so what seems what seems to be just obvious to me. Uh, reading your book, and you never actually used this term, and I was looking for it, was that this is a eschatological debate. It really is eschatology that we're talking about. It's the course of human history and the and where it ends. Yeah. Uh, and with identity politics, it retains the Christian impulse towards the eschaton without fully understanding the eschaton. And churches have, a, in a large part, failed to, uh, you know, to use a, a fairly popular phrase, uh, uh, oh man, I forget the guy's name who made it uh, famous, but to uh, bring the oh imminent S. Eric Vogelin. Eric Vogelin, 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 Vogelin. Yes, to imminentize the uh, eschaton. And that's what they're trying to do via politics, where it used to be done via the church. Yeah. So here's, uh, I guess, a question uh, for you. If 
and this has been what I talked to a lot of my um, conservative friends about because they're freaking out. Their heads are exploding. They think the West is dying. There's a cancer. Yeah. It can't be excised. Is I say, listen, if identity politics continues, it's eating itself. It's, it's chopping its foundation out from underneath of the body. It's not going to be able to continue uh, because they'll eventually get down to such a marginal little tiny speck that's not yet affected uh, that are that are the center. Um, so what, what do you see the timeline on something like that being if in fact that is the thing that's going on? Uh, and if that's not the thing going on, is it a possibility that the West does just fail and this is like the death knell uh, to the whole thing? Well, there, there are a lot of things in there. Uh, first, uh, I cut my teeth on Vogelin in graduate school. And let's repeat his formulation that uh, the, the modern world eminatizes the eschaton. That is to try, that is to say, it tries to bring about the end of history through human means rather than waiting upon God. Uh, my argument is a variant of this. It's that what identity politics does is it immunitizes the scapegoat, right? So the scapegoat, the divine scapegoat is Christ who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, and so it's, it, it, yes, it's immunitizing the eschaton, but, but more precisely, which is what Marxism does, but what, what it's doing more precisely is immunitizing the scapegoat. And as you indicated, the, the scapegoat, the prime transgressor right now is the white heterosexual male. Now, what, when you have a Christian understanding you know that there was one sufficient sacrifice uh, after which there was no need for any sacrifice because the deed was done as it was said on the cross, yes? Uh, but if you have an imminent scapegoat, then once you purge one scapegoat, you're still haunted. And we have to be clear about why we're haunted. And we're haunted because the Christian insight, which effectively put an end to pagan cathartic rage, was that there's no one that you can scapegoat out there that's gonna take away your sin because your sin is original. It's yeah. always already there. And there's no group that you can purge that will allow you to sleep well at night because the problem is not out there, the problem is in here. So if the problem is indeed in here, then once we purge the white man and, and arrive purportedly arrive at this place where the poison is gone, people are gonna to continue to be haunted because the poison is not out there, it's in here. Yeah. And so they're gonna need another scapegoat. And it's fairly straightforward what happens next. Uh, and here I'll get your question about how this ends. So the next group is, is white women and we're already seeing the Karen meme and other things. They'll be next. The, the really interesting one is what happens after that. And the next group will be black heterosexual men. And if you look at, at uh, what the left has been arguing, you see the following pattern. Uh, civil rights goes to women's rights, goes to gay rights, goes to transgender rights. And, uh, and the left has been arguing for some time that the, the exception is the rule, not the exception proves the rule, but the exception is the rule, which means that if, you're, if you are not sufficiently woke, if you're not prepared to defend the transgender cause, uh, which is now the new norm, then you're guilty of heteronormativity. You've heard the phrase, right? right? You're right. guilty of, of believing that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. This now becomes a thought crime. Well, it's very interesting. If you go back and read Martin Luther King, he was quite clear about what black America needed in order to thrive. They needed strong families. They needed strong churches. And Martin Luther King was clear that the state needed to step in as a supplement to those mediating institutions, but not be a substitute for them. Well, yeah. it has become a substitute for them, which is why black conservatives like Glenn Lowry and Bob Woodson and any number of others, Ian Rowe, have been pushing back. They've been saying, no, we have to have our mediating institutions. But if it's the case that now in the transgender movement to believe in the, the heteronormative family and the so-called homophobic church makes you guilty of a thought crime, the original group upon which the moral authority of all these subsequent groups, um, the original group uh, that, that, uh, that, that gives authorization to the moral mm. claims of the subsequent groups, uh, they now become guilty of, of thought crimes. And so where this ends, frankly, is when black America says no. And I've uh, told uh, Bob Woodson, who I work with very closely, and we can talk about him if you want, the Woodson Center, he was civil rights, he's 83, he's a national treasure. 
and you know, I've had lengthy discussions about this. I, I said, Bob, black America has more moral authority today than it did during the civil rights movement. Mm. And it had immense moral authority in the civil rights movement. Uh, it has more today because only black America can say to the left, no, you may not use our wound as a template to continue to move farther and farther left and attack the very things that we know we need in order to thrive. And my sense of this is that the reason yes. why race became such a profound issue for the Democrats this last election cycle, near the end of the election cycle, was because as it keeps moving farther left and demanding of all of its members that it support the transgender cause, the first group that are gonna say, no, wait a minute, we didn't sign up for that, are gonna be conservative black Americans. Black America is about 80% conservatives on social issues about family, et cetera. Uh, and so in order for the Democratic Party to retain Black America on the bus, so to speak, um, they, they needed to uh, suggest to them that America's racist, that only the Democratic Party has their back. Uh, but, but the cost of them having their back is that they have to support the transgender movement. I think that is the great right. rift. Yes. Uh, and it's, you can see this beginning to develop already. But Black America could tomorrow say, look, women, fine. If you've got issues, white women, if you've got it, great, fine. But it's not, it's not an extension of our cause. Gay Americans, if you want to talk about things, that's great. But no, it's not an extension of civil rights. And, and the same to transgender. And I think, you yeah. know, we, look, these are, these are complicated times. Uh, and, and my suspicion is those issues would arise anyway. But, but they should not arise on the back of Black America. And I yeah. think- Americans are beginning to see that. So that's, that is, in my view, how this ends. Yeah. One of the things that I find just fascinating in the book, in fact, before, before we, we begin talking, Dale and I were talking earlier before he got here about just the relationship between the sections in the book, because one thing that's very clear is that you're not arguing sort of identity politics leads to these other things in the rest of the book. What you say is if you got rid of identity politics, we'd still have these two other problems. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 it's a, and, and one of the things that I really especially appreciate about the book is that the problems you identify, especially in terms of supplements and substitutes, you know, and you have about 15 or 20 in a list of substitutes, they're things we all do. They're, yeah. they're, they're ubiquitous in America. And, and, and that, I, I want to talk about that part for a minute. Uh, a, I guess what I'm curious about is, would you say that the, the kind of pathological activities and relations, if I could put it that way, that you identify toward the latter portion of the book are sort of that without which you couldn't, identity politics would never be a persuasive discourse. That is to say, unless we're kind of living in this virtual landscape, identity politics doesn't have something to grab onto in the same powerful way. And then the sort of comma, the other thing I'm kind of curious about is, do you also see, even if even if it's not the same kind of language game, if I could put it that way, do you also see parodies of this kind of activity on the right? Because there's also sometimes on the right, you do see a kind of trend, uh, you know, sometimes the, I think the fight against cultural Marxism, for instance, yeah. uh, you, you know, you hear Tim Keller, you know, he used a, a woke sounding word. Well, now he's on this team called the cultural Marxist. We got to purge him out of the church. And yeah, you sort right. of see the right playing the same oddly the same game in its own way. And I want you to, I'm curious yeah. what your thoughts are on that. So uh, this is a really important point. So uh, let's put it this way. I don't think identity politics could have the purchase that it does without the second two pieces, both the bipolarity and the addiction. So uh, let me just do that part briefly. So uh, the second part, which is about bipolarity and addiction is arguing that that in the 1830s in Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which is a book everybody should own and read, uh, what Tocqueville saw was a growing delinkage between persons, yeah. uh, isolation and loneliness. And this has been a grand theme, especially post-World War II. All the major social theorists have been thinking about this problem and it's yeah, yeah. just gotten worse and worse and worse. And, and what he saw was that, um, that we, would, we would probably create a world to quote him, uh, where we thought ourselves to be greater than kings and less than men. It's a beautiful yeah. phrase, which is bipolarity, right? Right. Utterly sovereign and, uh, and yet utterly impotent and lonely and alone. Uh, 
And throughout democracy in America, he argues there's only one resolution to that problem. And that is that we do everything we can to look outward to our neighbors as opposed to up to the state. Well, now let's fast forward 180 years to a place where the state more and more is responsible for, for taking care of us. And I think it's only under those circumstances where we don't have to count on our neighbor that identity mm -hmm. politics could emerge. How is that so? Because when you have to count on your neighbor, you can make all sorts of declarations about who you are and, and who, who the other person is, but that's really not gonna matter because you have to work with that person. Yeah, and, yeah. and so what attenuates the, the, the disposition of the imagination to caricature the other person and to be self-satisfied with yourself, what attenuates that is the constant dealing with one another as our neighbors. So Tocqueville says, feelings and ideas are renewed, the heart enlarged, the mind expanded only by the reciprocal actions of men one upon another. He knew the problem, which is that we're gonna withdraw into ourselves, develop caricatured understandings of who the other person is. And, and what is identity politics if not a caricature, right? Oh, you're a white man. Oh, you're a black woman. I mean, these categories that we bring to bear before we even talk to people, there's no way we could possibly get away with that if in our daily lives, we had to count on our neighbors. And, and so my part of my objection to identity yeah. politics is that rather than building this, what I call this liberal world of competence, where we discover who we are and discover who the other person is in our daily, daily dealings with them, what identity politics does is it puts up a roadblock before we even work together. You must respect me as this uh, before I'm even gonna talk with you. Well, only in a world where the state is providing for all of our needs, um, can we pretend that we don't need our neighbor? Yeah. Tocqueville writes, a tyrant will forgive citizens for not loving him, provided they do not love one another. It's extraordinary insight here that the best way to, to have strong state power is to break the links that, that hold people to one another. The only way that you can really oppose a tyrant is if you can count on your neighbor. Well, what does identity politics do? It breaks the links between people. We're not, we're not in this world to build something together. We're in this world to distinguish ourselves and to establish an intersectional hierarchy on the basis of which some are permanently stained and some are saved. I mean, this is a really, really sick world. So that's the bipolarity and addiction portion that I think contributes uh, to, to identity politics emerging. And then if you wanna talk about this in terms of addictions, well, Facebook is a great example, right? So uh, I'll step back here. So my theory of addiction, it's not mine, it's already back in Plato, uh, is that, um, that human beings uh, need to have a meal and then there are supplements to the meal. And if you have supplements to the meal, that's a wonderful thing. You can be stronger, uh, but there are supplements and you always have to do the hard work of having the meal. Now, the great temptation is to turn a supplement into substitute. So boy, these vitamins are making me stronger. Why go through the elaborate effort of making a meal? I can just live on pills and protein powder. Right. And many of us have tried to do this. I was a weightlifter in my forties. I did this. It didn't work. Right? <laughs> but all of us are tempted by these shortcuts. Uh, and so, uh, Facebook is one of these shortcuts. So friendship is the meal. Facebook friends is the supplement. And if you know what friendship is, and there's no shortcuts to knowing what friendship is, if you know what that is, then to have this supplement is extraordinary because you know what friendship is and then you can communicate with your friends yes. around the world. And it, yes. it is immensely empowering. And so I'm not critical of social right. media as a supplement. This is, this yes. is not a, a Luddite argument about right, 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 right. technology. Uh, but what I'm saying is because we're all disposed, because to be human is to look for shortcuts. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to be humans look to shortcuts and, and therefore it comes to our mind that maybe we don't have to do the hard work of forming friendships. Uh, maybe we can just have Facebook friends. Well, this contributes to identity politics because then instead of doing the hard work of dealing with people in their infinite complexity, we self-select 
uh, along social media categories, which Facebook is more than happy to provide for us. I mean, they're, yeah. they're providing right. the categories and the feeds, which, which push us into silos. Uh, and so there too, I think identity politics couldn't even get started if we had not succumbed already to, to digital substitutism, right? Yeah. And so the, an, the antidote to this is a return to analog. And uh, you know, one of the questions that you all had posed to me beforehand is, what do we do with the people who are still living in the analog world? The whole young men, for example, yes, who aren't part of this digital elite. But my view is we've made a terrible, terrible mistake and our competition with China is actually making this much worse because the Chinese are moving full on digital. Yeah. And, and I would remind you that in the 19th and 20th century, 20th century, the Russians felt that they were behind Europe and thought that by skipping this, the Bolsheviks thought that by skipping the stage of capitalism, they could go directly to communism and get to the end of history. It's a funny thing that's happening with China. There's a variant of that involved here. So they've been behind for several centuries. And their thinking is we can leapfrog by going fully digital. Now, my argument is that digital is a supplement to analog, but not a substitute for it. And right. my worry is that, is that Americans in their interest in keeping up with the Chinese are making the exact same mistake. We're going full on digital. So the military, for example, has embraced this strategy. And you might remember a few years ago, there were a couple of Navy ships that crashed in the Pacific. And they crashed because the software programs went bad, uh, but there was no one on the ship that could actually steer the ship. Right. Yes. <laughs> so what, what we're doing is we're gutting analog competence. And, and ultimately this is a mistake because digital can be a supplement to analog, but it can't be a substitute for it. And one way of looking at the blue state, red state divide is the red states largely have a lot of people who are out there working with their hands, involved in the analog world. And, and blue statism is it's a group of people who are deeply uh, linked and live through digital technology. Now we all do to some extent, but the question is, do we understand the proper relationship to it? And I think the blue state dream, the digital dream, is that we'll all be renters, we'll have, we'll have no material possessions, the middle class has no right to exist because it uses too much resources. We should all live on our Apple uh, iPads and iPhones and live in rental uh, high rises in big cities. I mean, this is a serious dream to move away from the analog embodied world that, that takes resources and is inefficient. This is a terrible mistake that we're making, but all of us are in one way or another implicated in it and tempted by it. So driverless cars, for example, I am all for having drivers across America who understand how to drive, have done the hard work of figuring out how to drive. And then occasionally, you know, I live two hours away from Washington. It would be wonderful if I could get a bit of work done and sure. have a car that, that drives automatically. But I can imagine a situation when all the competence about driving a car with respect to driving a car has been lost, and then the co computer network goes down and nobody can leave their home and they die, or somebody deliberately decides, right, that we're gonna we're gonna cut the uh, the driverless cars out of the equation for the day, or shoot the EMPs off. I mean, you just right. detonate a few EMPs and we're all done. Right. So, <laughs> right. so what right. we have to do is we have to understand that we we must build a world of what I call liberal competence. The, the competence to drive a car, to make a meal, to make friends, to be courageous. All, all, we've, we're trying to find shortcuts and the consequence psychologically of, of living in these shortcuts is, is what you see in addiction. Namely, you have these moments of tremendous high and moments of tremendous low. And I talk to my students uh, around the globe where I, where I teach in a number of different venues and they express this. On the one hand, they feel tremendously empowered that they have everything they seemingly need on their Apple iPhone. And yet they go to sleep at night feeling utterly numb, knowing yeah. that there's something seriously wrong. And here again, you have this, this bipolarity of super abundant power that you feel when you're an addict, but, but, uh, but uh, yeah. circumscribed by moments of tremendous lows. And the only antidote to that is to fall back into analog life and, and to simply say to ourselves, and this is what I think we ultimately must do. This is what I talk about at the very end of the book. We have to look around and say, how is this working for us? I mean, yeah. And I don't mean by looking at the, the momentary high, I mean by setting the high with the low and, and looking at the whole of it. And I think yeah. if we yeah. look at the whole of it, we'll realize that the meal as difficult as it is, 
is important to us, that embodied life, as difficult as it is, is important to us. Another way to put this is incarnate life, right? Yes. The infinite yeah. comes to earth and, and suffers. I mean, this is an incarnate theory that I'm giving us here. This is, and way, this is what you mean by, by world building, I think. When you talk about world building, I, I gather that you, you're thinking of an analog world, the idea that bodies, quite literally bodies, yes. are near each other in building. And, and maybe it's worth talking about that a little bit just to, to kind of specify it, because one thing in the kind of, con sometimes in conservative thought, there's a tendency to, to say, especially at a moment like this, where you, know, you read all the weird stories or whatnot, that the kind of, you might think, you know, a suburb with 6 million people in it, that project is done. You know, the blue, the blue one, and that we shouldn't even think of it in terms of Democrat and Republican, but let's say the digital one. Uh, and so really what we need to do is pull out of that project and go set up communities over here while Western civilization sort of burns down and we'll have our, our little place in the ashes when that's over. Yeah. But what, what was interesting about, it seemed to me your approach was you really are talking about, and this gets back to kind of disenfranchised young people. Um, you're really talking about, it seems to me what your solution emphasized was something that really involves just taking stock of where you are right now. It doesn't mean go move and have a project over there. It yeah. means take, take possession you. of what's right in front of your face. Yeah. And if that means you have a, a neighbor who's sympathetic with Antifa, that means, you know, grill hamburgers and talk to him. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Thank you. That is well said. So one of the one of the interesting things I've found in the last several years, uh, in in my students' minds, is uh, that they're I teach classes which draw in conservatives and liberals, and it's one of the few classes that does this. And I will get email notes from students saying, "I'm horrified by what this person said. I can't stand them. I why are they in the class?" And I and I say to them since we're all on Zoom, look at them, they are your fellow citizens. Yeah. And, and somehow you're gonna to have to find a way uh, to work with them. And to your earlier point, no, this is absolutely right. I have immense, Rod Dreher is a friend and I have immense respect for all that he has written. But my question is, isn't it the case, or my observation is, it is the case that we probably have what we need right in front of us, that what we need to do is to, to recognize there are aspects of our life which are analog, let us return to the meal where possible. There's a larger issue here. So I've been involved in the political theory debates for 40 years. And the great big debate is between those who believe in a fixed human nature, these are the conservatives on the right, and an infinitely malleable uh, historical development. This is on the left. So the, the debate has been between nature and history, okay? Which is, which is the way to go? And what I've tried to do is step sidestep that debate entirely. I mentioned that this book is concerned with three different sets of relationships. And what I've proposed to do is instead of talking about uh, human nature, which some of us are going to agree upon and others are not, uh, instead of having this infinite, this belief that history is going to redeem us and we just keep moving the digital direction, let us take a good hard look at how we're living out the problem of substitutism or how we're we're not, we're not using the supplements as, as sup supplements. We're trying to find shortcuts and turn them into subject. Why not, instead of getting involved in these debates, we're never going to win. Let's yep. take a look at the life that we're living right now. And so, you know, maybe it's a good idea, even if it's not economically efficient, maybe, you know, grow a garden and develop some competence there. It, yes, it's economically inefficient, but the great problem of human life right now is that we're losing competence. And when we're losing competence and citizens, then you can imagine how they're going to start looking around and blaming people and labeling people instead of saying, listen, we're all in this game together of building a world of competence. Let's see what we can do. You know, I, some of my friends on the right are very upset about immigration. I don't know where you guys are on this, too. My view is the people who are here are here. We need to find a way to citizenship, but they have to get in line between those who are who are already legal here. But okay, here we are. We have these amazing different, uh, uh, sometimes antithetical uh, cultures here. Somewhere down the line, this is going to work itself out. And instead of being incendiary toward one another, why don't we just build a world together and see what happens? I mean, black and white culture to me is the best example of this. In some ways, so different. And yet, some of the most interesting movements, jazz, 
Uh, mm. I'm not a great fan of rock and roll, but that was the synthesis that came out. I mean, it, when these two cultures move together, then you can get some very interesting developments. Um, Bob Woodson tells stories about how the black community is the most patriotic community on earth. I don't doubt it. Mm. Uh, many of them, there are many who are not obviously just as in the other right. community as well. But, but why don't we see what we can do to, to build a country together uh, we, we just don't know. So instead yeah. of deciding yeah. in advance who the other person is, why don't we, in a way, recognize there's a providential unfolding here and let's yeah. go with it. Yeah. There's, a, there's a curious, well, well, almost Jacobin quality, it seems to me, to all of us in that what, what strikes me, and Dale, I'll just pass this right off to you, but what's just very briefly, what strikes me is a, uh, uh, I, why don't we build that 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 world together? I think that's the right the right question. What, the answer that I hear both on some versions of the left and maybe the extreme right is it turns out there's a lot of people who don't want to. And it turns out there are actually a lot of people who uh, uh, who who are almost like this. At least when you get to the extreme ends of the ideologies, maybe this isn't the the norm quite yet. But yeah. you can see the trajectories of the ideologies on either side. When you see somebody say, no, I'm actually looking, you see people on the right who are actually looking for the insurrection, you know, looking for the one six takeover. They're they're happy about it. <laughs> and then you yeah. see on the left, the same thing. We're actually looking for it to burn down because then the patriarchy will be smashed or something. Right. And I think this what you, this line you're identifying is actually quite a litmus test, which is, are you are you interested? It seems to me the question everybody in America needs to ask themselves are, is, are you interested in doing the project of civilization with that guy right over there, whether you agree with him or not? And, yeah, and the thing is, is like most people in their everyday life, they don't actually, so here's the thing that I'm noticing. So I, I told everyone uh, after I read your book, when they, they were going, what did you think? I said, it scratched some very deep itches for me. Um, and part of the reason is because I think one of my natural instincts is to say, okay, we've, we've been in the voting booth. We've pulled the lever on a federal level for so long. Yeah. We're just, we're just voting on policy and we don't even know what's going on with that dude right there that lives next to me. Yeah. Uh, so what the thing that you emphasize over and over again in the book is genuine world building. I love that language. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm deeply in, interested in doing something like that as well. So it's like, first get your house in order, right. right? Like take care of the family and then take care of the people in the church and then take care of people in the polis. Right. Uh, and th those are all different uh, stages of training that you go through in order to do the polis thing well. Yeah. Um, and then once you can sort of hone the craft and do the dance and understand yourself and your abilities and your limitations and this person's abilities and their limitations, then right. you can almost co-op them into the stream of the move yeah. unconsciously because this is the most natural human movement that we make towards one another if you force a relationship. Yeah. Now, the relationship, as we see from all the crazy murder uh, uh, documentaries on uh, Discovery Channel, could be that somebody kicks your door in and shoots you. Right. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, but we, I, what I think we've gotten into is a, a sort of algorithm of mistrust fundamentally, yeah. mm. uh, which is rooted in identity, politics, thinking, whether that be the right or the left. Yeah. Uh, and Joe and I have talked about this before, but him and I really do see the right and the left as sort of negative photocopies of one another yeah. when it comes to stuff like this. Yeah. Uh, and what I think your book was doing to me who I'm already very interested in doing the hyper local thing yeah. is to say, keep going. That's the way forward. Yeah. Develop genuine, deep, deep, fine grain, vulnerable relationships with the people in your life. God providentially sprinkles them in your, in, in, along your path. Right. Use, understand your gifts, pull out the weapons, go to war with the things in the best way that you can. Right. Uh, and this is how we actually just live as Christians in, in the modern age. Um, but I think the move to do that consciously is what's difficult, yeah. because I think what happens is you're talking about substitute and, and um, supplement is people really do get informed by the Internet. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's no longer like reading the neighbor as the neighbor. It's yeah. what the internet Facebook group yeah. told you to think about the person that looks like that. This is kind <laughs> of inflecting it through like Taylor has this notion of secularity, right? That we're, we're secular at the moment. Our beliefs are an option. And if I were to inflect this book that way, I think one thing you could say is we, we tend to take the supplements as soon as they're an option. And in what's what's weird is that I think what Dale said, and this I, I think what you said is very insightful, and I think this is true. Of, I'm teaching a course right now on the philosophy of modernity for the Davenant Institute, and so I, I find this 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 pattern so fascinating. Um, and that is that there's so many things in the modern world that are natural, you could argue, and good for you are the meal, uh, but 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 life doesn't make them happen automatically. Right. You right. have to go choose now to live in the, you actually have to choose to live in the analog world, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is, which is fascinating historically. That's yeah. very yeah. strange. And yet what you said earlier, I think is exactly the key. Uh, and that is that, that maybe we should actually read this as a providential moment. Lewis, one quote I, I often throw around is Lewis, C.S. Lewis in Miracles has this wonderful uh, passage where he says something to the effect of, uh, common men bear a burden. And you can almost see this in de Tocqueville, what, what, what democracy requires of people, that common men bear a burden that they have not classically borne. And what, what C.S. Lewis basically goes on to say as well, that could be a terrible experiment or, right. perhaps, or perhaps God intends to develop a civilization of sages. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that's his, you know, it's a very fascinating uh, kind of eschatological hint in Lewis, but, uh, but, but it's, but it's, uh, analogous to your emphasis on the development of competence. Yeah. 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 So let me let me add. So one of my favorite parables uh, is the parable of the prodigal son. And what I find so informative and troubling is that before the son returns the father, he's not only left human company and feasting with pigs, he's mm. he's even gone beyond feasting on pig corn he's feasting on the husks of the pig corn, which means he's really gone all the, before he returns to what he needs to return to, mm. he is just gonna suck every bit of non-nourishment out of the world. And that's what I think was gonna happen with the digital. I think we're gonna go just as far as we can. And it's, it's feasting on husks here. Yeah. I'll just give you a quick example. So you can see my background. It's it is the best wall of an 1835 farmhouse that we're restoring. I'm not even gonna show you the rest of it. So I need a mill, yeah? So I'm going on the internet and I'm looking for mills in Pennsylvania to do some custom work. Mills in Pennsylvania, mills in Delaware. And then I get in the car and I drive down the road and a mile from my house is a guy with a mill in his front yard. And I'm thinking, I just wrote the book and I can't yeah. even learn my own lessons. Yeah. And I, I, think, yeah. I think this is the key. We, we, we have what we need right in front of us. I think the yeah. only way we're going to get there is when we realize we're feasting on husks of corn and we say, this is really not working. Uh, sure, I'll have my phone with me, but, but I need to go explore what's actually here. And we have what we need. This is the hardest lesson. It's all right. Give us this day our daily bread. It's all right here. Yeah. And, and when we get to that point where we realize we're, we're looking around the world and we're not finding what we need, then I think to come back to the prodigal son, we return home. Yeah. Uh, but, but I worry that it, we're, we're not done with this experiment yet. Well, and that's the thing, like there needs to be a gestalt shift. Uh, psychologically, spiritually, consciously, yeah. that takes place in order for this project to happen. And that really gets into your bipolarity, where yeah. it's like you can see yourself as an agent in the game. And yeah. you have this grand vision of like, ah, I see it. This is like, just love one another as you would have people love you. Right. That, that, that will organize society fairly well. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm almost incapable because of the global community I'm situated in yeah. by providence, by the way. Yeah. And that's another thing. It's like by God's providence, all of the things are here. Yeah. Um, and which then that's why I think that your your uh, distinction of uh, substitute and supplement is just perfect yeah. because it's not telling young men throw away your smartphone and delete your Twitter account. Right. It's telling young men, hey, first 
you know, make sure you've got the basics in line and then you can supplement here. But if you're not nice to your sister, you're probably not going to be nice to the dude on Twitter. Right. right? So yeah. like, yeah, just be a normal human pre-technological uh, industrial revolution, recognizing God's good gift to us in the industrial revolution. We have to return to the meal in the deepest sense, yeah. and yeah. not just the supplement. And and the invitation is our hunger. We, we know that we're not being fed now. And this is, this is in a way the good news. You know, I ask my students who are so certain about digital life, so certain about their jack and disposition. Hmm. You know, I catch them off guard. I say, how is that really working for you? Not, not in your yeah. moments of, of Facebook protests, but in, in your moments of solitude when you fall asleep at night with a longing you can't name. How yeah. is that working for you? Yeah, and this is this is where there's I, you know, I think there's something frustrating occurring, and that is is that it's it's as though what what happens I think uh, among Christians is we just become entrenched in ideological warfare right. rather than what you just said, which is you see that those who take these meals are actually incredibly hunger hungry. Yeah. So what if instead of looking at transsexuals or whatever as this thing that violates you, what if rather you saw, I think we talked about this last, last time we talked, Dale, uh, what if you rather saw transsexuals as somebody that is actually deeply hungry to be what God made them to be, but have a relationship of shame to it. And the same thing with all the sorts of ways people are bound up in ideology. Um, uh, and then uh, there's something more Christian, more magnanimous, more confident even, I think, about that approach. Um, and it also doesn't frame them them then as sort of like getting into the headspace of framing others as affirmers or judgers of me. That's yes. already to be in a kind of narcissistic space right. that we really need to get out of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And rather, I'm going to love that neighbor. Um, um, it's interesting. Something. Go ahead. Let me add something to this. So... Um, one thing I say to my conservative friends is you, you really don't understand that, that in a funny way, I, the people on the left who, who are playing with identity politics at least understand that the great, a great, the great question of life is transgression and innocence. And, mm. and, and I think conservatives, they'll talk about free markets if they're libertarian, they'll talk about conservative values but they don't have any way to understand this, this longing for justice, longing for a Dean world. And in my view, the way I say this increasingly to people on the left is the things that you're identifying in identity politics are, are very watered down versions of what Christianity offers. So for example, right. unconscious bias, or what's the other term that's often used? Um, unconscious bias, do you know what the other one is? Um, um, uh... Uh, I, I know what we're going for, but it's a, it's, but yeah, there's a, there's an analog to it, and I'm, I'm, yeah, it's slipping me as well. Bias. And so, but, but they on the left, it's, it's, uh, it's understood in terms of race. But if you believe in original sin, you know that every moment of your waking hours, there's a problem within you. You're, you're not yes. seeing the world straight. Yes. You're, you're wrapping the world around yourself. Uh, you're you're not trusting in God, and so uh, unconscious bias is just a, a very flat version of the problem of original sin. Right. And so my argument is they they at least they at least know what some of the issues are in a way more deeply than some conservatives do. But they but our, I think the Christian gift has to be an invitation back to the full amplitude of these things. Yes. I teach Plato's Republic. And, uh, and I've taught it for 40 years and I probably taught it 90 times. And one of the, one of the most haunting and beautiful passages occurs at the beginning of book two. So very quickly, it's, Republic has 10 books. And during the first book, these young men have been offering arguments about what justice is and all of them turn out to fall flat on their face. And at the beginning of book two, the conversation really begins because what these two young men, Adimantus and Glaucon, say to Socrates is our, our fathers have never told us what justice is. And so we've developed these really twisted versions. Please help us. And my view is that identity politics is a plea. It is a plea 
to understand transgression and innocence by a group of people who don't have a language to understand it yeah. fully adequately. And I think the Christian, there's a profound opportunity for Christians today. I know there's a temptation to run from it, but we have the most profound opportunity in a very, very long time to show that what this, this deeply pathological movement really is about, if they could really understand it at the deepest of levels, is Christian, but they've contorted it so badly that it ends up being profoundly destructive. So conservatives on the right will talk about religious liberties and family values. And my view is that is utterly dead language. The challenge of the time right now is to show how the various terminology within identity politics, the use of the term scapegoat, the use of the term identity, uh, innocent victim, all of this points to this treasure that Christians have lost sight of and now need to go back into the world and say, come unto me, this is the deeper meaning of it. And precisely because it's resolved in a kind of, I don't want to call it, a, it's not a super historical way, it's resolved historically, but it's but it's not resolved um, uh, uh, politic, politically, institutionally. And so the, po the polis then, I think, gets its rightful place as a, as a, as a pilgrimage. The, yeah. the civilization is a pilgrim civilization that never, and, right. and, and yeah, justice never, you, you work toward justice just right. as you do in yourself and in your marriage, but you never have a perfect marriage. You're never perfectly fixed. You know, it's the same thing. So we uh, live in hope. And I think this is the yes. failure ultimately yeah. of the eschatological vision. It presumes that if we can just take this shortcut of getting rid of the prime transgressor, we get to the promised land. To be Christian is to live amidst brokenness in hope and faith. That is an incredibly difficult thing. And just in terms quickly of, of say, international relations, this plays out in very profound ways. Mm. It means that we live within embodied national communities and hope for more. So we hope for a whole unified world, but it's never going to be actualized. And so the state is with us. This is St. Augustine. The state is with us and will be with us until the end of time. And God will unify everything at the end of time. But until that time, we live within particular communities longing for more, but still being bound in particular. So it's, it's through hope and faith that we can reconcile particular and universal. Uh, but yeah. without that language, then we choose one or the other. And so you get blood and soil nationalism over here, and right. you get left Jacobinism over here. And that's the catastrophe. Only Christianity can mediate between these two poles, which is why I've, de I've declared in the book that, I, that I, I don't believe that left and conservative are the proper ways to work this through. We have to find something that goes through the middle that recognizes yeah. that there's a historical development that God's in charge of, but there's also a nature that we're bound by, and that too is difficult to resolve, but God will resolve at the end of time. If you lose Christianity, you only get the two poles, and that's what we yeah. have today. Mm. Yeah. Well, brother... Um you need to keep saying what you're saying uh, all over the place. Yes. Uh, God bless you for your voice in the conversation. It yes. has been, um, it, it's been good to think through and to resonate with, and also uh, sort of bias confirmation with some of my instincts on just build out the community around you. Uh, that seems like the good first move anyway. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that people are saying what you're saying. Uh, I guess before I ask Joe if he's got any more uh, questions, one question I want to ask you as we sort of shut it down is, are you working on anything else? Is there anything else in the pipeline that you're playing with in terms of projects? Well, I tend to go fallow after I write a book. I write a book once every six or seven years, uh, and they always surprise me. So my last one uh, was a consequence of living off and on in the Middle East and building a couple of universities there. I wrote a book called Tocqueville in Arabia. Hmm. Uh, and, hmm. and, then, and then this book, uh, I wrote a draft of it in six months of 16 hours a day. It just wrote itself. And I'm... Uh, I'm doing follow through on this for, for now. I probably should write a book a little bit more about liberal competence and you all have prompted me to think about more about how what I, what I should point to constructively about what the next steps are, because we need that. So yes. I might do something along those lines. Uh, I'm very busy restoring an old farmhouse too. So uh, yeah. probably work on that for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I think the the last comment I'll make, Dale, just because I'd love to put a bug in your ear. In, in fact, you've already identified it. Uh, but but I am fascinated uh, if you're if you're interested in the the developing thoughts on liberal competence. I think it would be really interesting 
because I haven't seen this yet, is just have somebody kind of write that sort of Jordan Peterson, you know, sort of level sort of analysis of competence, but also uh, that uh, has something to understand sort of the range of human weakness in an intimate way. Because yeah. very often what you get, well, you know exactly where I'm going with that, yeah. but it's, I think that's that's also a sort of thing that Christianity reconciles in the, I was just telling, I've said this, I think again in our last podcast, that it's fascinating to me that the, la- the moral language of the New Testament is both so filled with athleticism, but is also so assuming of just ordinary human weakness that it's athletic about learning to crawl, <laughs> you know, if you will. And I, I find that juxtaposition fascinating. So that's all I have, Dale. This yeah. is hopeful. I'm going to, I think I'll, I'll move in this direction. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Oh well, thank you, brother. Appreciate your yes. time. Thank you. Joe, I, I love you, brother. Love you too, man. Um, as always, you guys can find us over on uh, YouTube. Have, head over to DavenantInstitute.org uh, to find all the information about uh, Pilgrim Faith. And we're also on their YouTube channel. We've got a Facebook group. Join the conversation. It would be great to talk with you. Joshua Mitchell, this was a great time. Thank you, yes, brother. Thank and you very much. God bless you. you take care. All right. See you all later. Bye.